whether or not you come from a technical background, at some point, everyone's got to be frustrated by a product that just doesn't live up to its promise. When you're designing new technologies for use in healthcare and life sciences, how can you make sure that they solve a real problem in practice, not just in theory? In particular, how can you get inside the heads of your users and work out what they really need? Hello and welcome to The Evidence Space, a podcast from the Institution of Engineering and Technology, which presents conversations with leaders from health, care and life sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Bannister, and on this episode of The Evidence Space, we're going to be looking at user-centric design for new technologies. You may have heard the terms UX, user interface design, ergonomics, but what do these actually mean when you're developing a new product to solve a medical need? In particular, how do these terms get interpreted if you're designing with the intention of your device being used by a patient versus one that's going to be used by a clinician? To discuss and help me answer these questions, I'm delighted to welcome to the evidence space Dr. Tarima Martin and Bastian Hauck. Tarima, Bastian, welcome to the evidence space. Hello. Tarima, could I start with you first and ask for an introduction and a fun fact about yourself? Yeah, sure. So thank you for inviting me. I'm a clinical academic leader. Um, I have a portfolio that sort of spans the entire healthcare landscape. So I have experience as a consultant radiologist. I've worked in the NHS frontline for over 12 years. Um, I'm an academic, a national clinical advisor for education reform at Health Education England. And I'm also a consultant for UK startups. Um, A fun fact about me, I love to dance. And I trained um, to a semi-professional level in ballet, tap, and modern jazz. And in my formative years, I set up a urban dance company called Funkology that is still successfully running to this day. That's terrific. Bastian, how about you? Thank you very much. Also, thank you very much for having me. So my name is Bastian Hauck. I'm a, a diabetes patient advocate. I'm on the board of the German and the International Diabetes Federation. I also run DDoC, which is uh, an international network of diabetes patient advocates. So people like me, people living with diabetes. I've been living with diabetes myself for about 25 years now, and uh, I'm excited to be here. Uh, Fun fact, I, as you might be able to see from the background, I am joining you from my boat, Peter. I'm sitting in Copenhagen on my boat, which is my boat office. I've run away from Berlin and COVID lockdown because Copenhagen is a bit uh, more relaxed and I thought there's no better space to self-isolate or at least keep some physical distance than on my boat. And another fun fact, I've sailed around the world, not in this boat, but in another one. I've done transatlantic, Southern Ocean, Cape Horn, Antarctica uh, some 10 years ago. And um, in the back is one of my books that I wrote about that. So anyways, great to be here. Fantastic. Thank you very much for sharing that. Bastian, again, welcome to the show. Great to have you back from those travels. Um, Maybe I can start with you as a patient advocate. What does usable or user-friendly design really mean to you? On a a very basic level, uh, Peter, it just means that, you know, the devices or the apps or whatever it is that is being produced for people like me, people living with a chronic disease that is part of me, of my daily life 24-7 every single day. Usability means I have to like this stuff, right? I want these products, devices, apps, solutions, whatever it is, 
I want them to be likable. I have to carry them around or use them every single day. If I'm not going to like them, I'm not going to use them. They're not going to work. And Tarima, from your perspective as a clinician who's very involved in upskilling the clinical workforce, the, the same question, what does good usable design mean to you? Yeah, I mean, so I, I completely um, take what Bastian, so his, his perspective is, you know, is this something that I'm going to use and is easy? For me, I would say, again, how likely am I to recommend this to my patients or clinician colleagues? Um, and that's really based on what I perceive as the benefit to the patient, but also to myself or other clinicians and also the wider sort of healthcare system. So for patients, the things that I'm most concerned about are, first of all, is this something that's safe and secure? So has it kind of met all the data privacy, the kind of regulatory aspects, and um, so that it's trusted and I can be sort of reassured that when I recommend this to a patient, they are safe. Um, also, is it clinically effective? So is it actually um, addressing a unmet healthcare need? And that can only be determined by the patient. So, you know, is it something that they, 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 they struggle with? Is it an issue that has been addressed through this digital solution? And therefore, you know, beyond that, does it have the evidence base? So we then move into the realms of kind of um, clinical quality and effectiveness. So is this something that has enough evidence for me to feel secure that actually, yeah, it is effective and, and I would promote it. Yeah, I, th I think the health inequality question is an increasingly important one when you consider balancing the potential of cutting edge solutions with the likelihood that the population to actually stands to benefit from them is ever gonna be able to use them. I mean, Bastian, it sounds very clearly that just proving scientific superiority on its own through your new intervention is not enough. There's a lot more that needs to be done for an intervention to be accepted, a new device or an app, and actually used in the way that it was intended. How do you achieve this idea of co-design in practice? Because I do get the sense that for some people, you know, it's a bit of a box ticking exercise. You know, I asked the patient, they said it was good. Then I went back to doing things the way I would have done anyway. As a patient advocate, how do you like to be engaged by the people coming up with these new innovations? Yeah. So I, I actually, me and, and our teams at Adidog, we, we do work with companies quite a bit who are working on tools, developing tools, etc. Uh, which, whether they're digital or, or real, you know, hardcore devices or whatever, one of the major things that I often see going wrong is that we are being brought in way too late. We're being brought in when a solution is pretty much there. And when it's just about asking, so do you like it? And uh, those that have been spending sometimes years of work, research, design, etc., basically and i understand basically what they want to hear is yes it's great we love it but you know if you come in that late and that is the only question you're asked and the answer is already almost kind of expected and then we don't like it then you know the only thing i can say is you know what you should have asked us three years ago when you started developing the solution or maybe you should have asked us five years ago when you started asking the question so when you start framing a research question in very basic science, that's when you start building on a certain hypothesis you have. You expect a certain unmet need. You expect a certain problem that you want to solve. But maybe this is not the problem I have. You know, maybe for us, the problem is, it might be the same, but it might feel different. Something else might be 
more relevant than what you as the researcher or as the product developer or as the company who's driven by a certain business model is looking at. So I think one of the keys to meaningful co-creation and collaboration on developing solutions in healthcare is don't bring people like me, patients slash users, I actually like the term user better, don't bring us in towards the very end when you're almost done. I couldn't agree more, actually, Bastian. You've put it absolutely perfectly that the model that we often uh, follow for academic research is that you have a kind of patient representative or you present them certain kind of, you know, uh, information along the development. But actually what you need to do is, as you said, include the patient and I would advise also the clinician as well, um, right at the inception, help them to really define, as you say, what is the actual problem that you're trying to address? Because that's the, for me, is the hardest bit. If you're not meeting an unmet healthcare need, then there is no point for this solution and it will never be adopted at scale. Um, and also, I think there needs to be a kind of fundamental shift in the way that uh, clinicians, engineers, um, patients, and all disciplines work together. So I definitely see from a kind of medical perspective that we're moving from somewhere where it's been very paternalistic, um, hopefully to somewhere where it's more about shared decision-making and empowering patients. But I think if we really look to the future of healthcare, where we want to move to health promotion rather than just sort of treatment of diseases, then we really need to establish um, some kind of infrastructure or kind of opportunity where it's much more sort of normal for patients to be involved and you always say, you know, users to be involved at the inception. And maybe a part of that is that all the different disciplines um, being used to that from an early age. And by that, I mean, this should be, you know, starting at medical school or, you know, at university level, rather than when you've graduated and you're starting a med tech company or you're, you know, looking at developing a solution that you then start to sort of, oh, do how, how would I go about this? Whereas if I think, you had the opportunity like in early stage education where patients, clinicians, engineers, computer scientists were all kind of, there was some shared curricular content or it was a core uh, thread of education. I, I believe that that would really change the culture around this. So this is really interesting because actually in that case, it doesn't sound like it matters who the eventual intended user of the device is, you're still going to benefit greatly from talking to a patient, someone who's got the condition early on in development when you're testing the hypothesis, as you said, even before you come up with a product solution. Sebastian, that model sounds really attractive, but you do make the point that it's not always feasible or attainable for smaller companies. Tarima, turning to you, as a healthcare professional, we, we obviously hear that healthcare professionals are very busy people, particularly now, how do you like to be approached to get involved in these kind of projects? What, what's a compelling ask for you to get involved in the early stages? So definitely, I sort of touched upon it. How, how is this going to make the clinician's life, life better, but also have impact? 
So again, get the clinicians involved early on. I think most healthcare professionals would love to become involved in any of these projects. It, there is this tension around having time to do that, but I would say, particularly in the UK, the you know NHS long-term plan has set a priority for digital to enable personalization of medicine. Um, it sets out much more flexibility in terms of healthcare careers. There are more and more opportunities, for example, um, clinical entrepreneur fellowships for people to become involved in this. Um, but fundamentally, maybe there, there is a shift um, in sort of both healthcare education and training, but also a move towards um, where for every healthcare professional, they have the fundamental skills where they might be involved in this and therefore it's part of their job plan. I do believe until you actually give them the kind of time within their job plan, it's really difficult for them to engage, but I don't think it's, it's lack of interest. So when I speak to my colleagues or anyone, this, because this is how they see um, healthcare will be improved and also um, fundamentally, A helps them kind of, you know, reduces this administrative burden, but also really supports the relationship they would like to have with their patients. So clinicians don't like to feel that they're rushing through sort of seeing patients, not having those meaningful conversations. So if there was a digital solution that could maybe remove some of that or add value through data, or then that's something that they'll they'll happily engage, engage with. But maybe it's a question of, you know, and this is a broader question to the system that we need to carve out some time in people's job plans so that they can actually do that. I guess that's that's very encouraging because at least with the right approach, the environment is such that healthcare professionals are more receptive or more likely to be in a position to collaborate with good opportunities. So when we talk about the role of users in the early development process, is that what we mean by user-led innovation, Bastian? Or am I talking about something different? User-led or user-driven innovation for me goes, goes further than that. User-led, user-driven means that you actually start from something or even by someone who lives with a disease or who has experienced a certain thing. So, for example, again, referring to my own uh, background, you know, we have a group of people in Berlin where, where we work and we are quite good friends, etc. And we all live with diabetes. And... Um, some of us have been starting to experience a couple of years ago with a DIY closed loop systems. So self-written algorithms, written open source by the community called We Are Not Waiting, a community that said, you know what, why is it not possible to link a continuous glu glucose monitor to my insulin pump? It's mm -hmm. one sense glucose monitor levels every five minutes by Bluetooth and then to my cell phone to the cloud. This pump has a remote control on my cell phone using Bluetooth. That can't be that hard. The only reason it's not there is regulation, it's liabilities, it's legal constraints mostly. It's not that, you know, the technology to write an algorithm that keeps the blood glucose more or less level is not rocket science. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's basic, but it's not rocket science, right? <laughs> so not that the big companies wouldn't be able to do that themselves. The reason they don't or they didn't until a few years ago bring it to market is that 
there was liabilities, there was legal constraints, there was regulatory non-approval, there weren't processes for this, etc. So a group of people got together and said, you know what, we can do this ourselves. We know about IT. We know how to do algorithm. We know how to reverse engineer an insulin pump. We know how to hack into the signal coming from a sensor. We can put this all together, see it on our laptop, write our own code, and then put it out there not as a product because that would be illegal because, again, it would be under regulation. But we could publish the source code in a Word document under the Freedom of Speech Act and just write a manual for people how to program their own app with it. And that's what they did. So in Berlin, what we did is, that's where it comes to user-led innovation to your question. We recently, uh, two years ago, applied for EU funding. And we got a million euros from the European Commission for a consortium that now includes universities, Charité in Berlin, Copenhagen University here where I am right now, the Steno Diabetes Center. Stanford is hopefully going to join us very, very soon. And the whole project, the whole consortium has been made up has been designed by people living with diabetes. And we are developing now the evidence base around it because we will never get to regulatory approval with DIY systems. We need industry to come on board. We need to push the boundaries of regulatory, regulatory you know, EMA, FDA, et cetera. We need to convince clinicians. We need to convince HCPs that this is safe, as you were saying, Tarima. This is safe. This is secure. It's not going to put us at risk. We have people in our group that have more than five years living with these kind of autopilots, right? We know it's safe. We know it's secure. We have more than 12,000 users worldwide using this right now. But just because we know doesn't mean that this is going to be approved, regulated, and prescribed by someone like you in the clinical setting. So we need to push it forward. So user-driven, user-led means we take it into our own hands, we do a proper research proposal, we apply to the European Commission, we get top-notch experts from around the world, some of them living with diabetes themselves, some of them looping themselves, some of them not, some are just really, really top-notch researchers. And we ask them to work with us and produce the kind of evidence, not clinical trials, but the kind of real-world evidence that then will convince someone like the EMA or the FDA or someone like you, Tarima, to understand that this is actually now written in your language. We have been publishing in peer-reviewed journal. We've been presenting at international conferences, ADA, EASD, ATDD. This is pushing boundaries. This is user-driven innovation because we want it. So we try to make sure that actually in the end, industry can come back on board and they will certainly be the ones who are now bringing products to market and this is currently happening. And they are the ones who will certainly make profit on this afterwards as well. And that's perfectly fine because we couldn't do it without them. So user-driven, user-led innovation for me, it sometimes starts from the community. It starts from an individual. I have hundreds of other innovations where it's a patient who had a need, who then came up with a solution and made it into a small, you know, handmade prototype and then try to scale it, et cetera. There's lots of examples out there. This is something even a bit further. But coming back to what your audience probably is, Peter, you know, people working in companies or SMEs or startups, et cetera, it doesn't have to be that radical. Just make sure that you talk to us early enough. Make sure you involve us early enough. And to going back to your question before, how do you do that in the patient user field? Just ask put a tweet out there, you know, put a tweet out there, use the right hashtags and say, hey, we are company XYZ, we work on this, we'd love to hear your feedback. This is what we think, challenge us. Tell us your story, come in, let's have an open house, let's, let's discuss, right? You will be amazed how many people will say, 
yes, sure. I'd love this is not for us. This is not business, right? We're not necessarily looking for profit in this. We're looking for helping you make whatever your idea may be better, because in the long run, this, this will benefit us. Definitely, and I think this is again the there's definitely in the last few years, as you say, more frameworks and uh, guidance or code of so that in the UK there's. Um, the code of conduct conduct for uh, NHS uh, digital and technology kind of solutions, and I think that does give people who want to engage in developing anything a little bit more um, guidance from 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 day one about how they would go about this, um, and that's helpful. But again, yeah, this and maybe actually there is a technological or healthcare solution out there to address, as you say, enabling us to kind of grow an evidence base at speed yeah. um, without going through the, the kind of rigmarole of an entire clinical trial and also identifying kind of quite early on who would benefit from that. Um, so you avoid kind of, again, having kind of adverse outcomes. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of promise, I think, at the moment for, for that to move forward. I see. So, so we're fundamentally changing the kind of evidence we can collect from users in the way that we're approaching the development, the prototyping of these new technologies. It's really interesting to understand, both in Germany and in other markets, how the regulators and the healthcare systems at large are responding to that. Look, Tarima Bastian, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I'd love to carry on the conversation, in particular, understand how you end up with a device that's genuinely, genuinely easy to use. If it's okay, I'd like to follow this up in our next episode. Yeah. On this episode of The Evidence Space, we've heard about the role that the user can play in the inception stage of new innovations for healthcare and life sciences. Bringing users into the design process late in the day is not a recipe for success. However, there are real benefits to identifying and engaging with your users as early on in the process as possible. We've also heard about opportunities for engineers to get on board and co-create new innovations with the users themselves and how they can make contributions moving these technologies through to market. Innovators have a clear opportunity to engage with users and test the hypothesis together as early as possible, not come up with a solution and then ask, is this good enough? We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of The Evidence Space. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please get in touch. And thank you very much for listening.